the Fellowship of Subterraneans, who are responsible for many of the elaborate honeycomb of catacombs and rat runs beneath the city, was well known for recruiting from the prison population. They held this up as a worthy effort to help rehabilitate prisoners, but it was common knowledge that, actually, they were mostly interested in folks with few other opportunities, because they could exploit the hell out of them. Jeffrey Wheeler, the first livery master my great-uncle Jason worked under, actually spent a lot of time lobbying for tougher sentencing, especially for the types of crime which he considered most likely to produce good subterraneans. Public disorder and fighting was his go-to, since he liked his work as strong and antisocial, less likely, in his mind, to unionise. The most fertile recruiting ground for Wheeler was the Clerkenwell House of Detention in modern-day Islington, since it handled a lot of petty criminals awaiting trials they could potentially plea bargain their way out of if Wheeler gave his blessing to the judge. More importantly, though, Clerkenwell House of Detention had a unique architectural feature. 286 of the prison cells were underground, in a complex now known as the Clerkenwell Catacombs. Well... 286 is the publicly acknowledged number. Out of sight and out of mind, who can truly know how deep the city buried its undesirables? I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. hidden catacombs all over the city, most often in ex-industrial areas which have gradually changed purpose over time. The Camden Catacombs, for example, are part of the connection between the rail line and the canals, and were set up as stables for the pit ponies used to shunt railway wagons around or tow riverboats. They're not true catacombs, much like most of the things I'll be referring to as catacombs in this episode, since they were never officially used to house bodies. But they feel like catacombs, all sheltered tunnels and disorientating repetition. They're largely hidden beneath the streets, but still visible through floor grates in some spots near the market, where the above-ground horse tunnels have been converted into the modern shopping complex. These catacombs were once the veins and arteries through which ran the blood of the market, manpower and horses, carrying goods between the canal and the heavy industry in the area. It's still possible to break into these tunnels if you're determined, but large sections of them are now flooded since they connect to the canal and haven't been used in years. As a teenager in the mid-2000s, I used to visit Camden Market and find it a fascinating, incomprehensible place. I was dimly aware that Camden was home to something important and fragile, but I could also sense that I was witnessing the tail end of a cultural wave, which I had already missed. I didn't really understand what gentrification meant at that point in my life, but it was obvious that Camden was a mishmash of goth fashion holdouts, second-hand shops, cross-punk nostalgia and record stores, 
all competing for space with the Converse outlet and the sprawling KFC. Camden wasn't cheap like it had once been, and it was full of kids like me, looking to pick up a spike belt and a German army shirt jacket without really understanding why. Indie music took over in the late 2000s when every band was somehow trying to find the new authentic, and most of them gravitated towards Camden one way or another. Pete Doherty and Amy Winehouse are the figures I'd consider the lasting icons of the era, even though neither really resonated with me, or most of my friends for that matter. They both embodied that sort of Camden shabby chic which wasn't attainable in the suburbs, which took connections that most of us never had. The flood of indie rock bands which blasted through the radio was, in actuality, a flood of privileged kids who mostly went to the same school, the Brit School in Croydon for reference, and who had been funnelled through a rock tumbler of industry-sponsored authentic credentials in Camden and Hackney before being selected to be played on XFM 15 times a day. It all felt very real and very unreal at the same time, reality TV in denial, the regurgitations of a rotten culture stuck on the idea that, well, if the floors are still sticky, it must be worth something. A pair of fires ravaged the old horse tunnels and the wider Camden Lock Market area in 2014 and 2017, taking with them the last vestiges of the scruffy, run-down market I remember. It's now been redeveloped into what is essentially a huge food court, with a handful of specialist shops preserved to keep tourists coming to see the local character. Weirdly, I actually like it more now, locked in the death embrace of tourist attraction, than I did when it was spiralling through identities at the end of my teens, trying desperately to remain cool in the face of landfill indie and millennial authenticity angst. Now it's a proper simulacrum, embracing itself as a relic, a London dungeon of dead culture which is at least having fun with it, at least not taking itself so goddamn seriously. At a certain point, Disneyland becomes a relief. Of course, the real question is why, despite it being prime real estate in a profitable tourist spot, Nobody has tried to clear the catacombs out, to convert them into an underground brewery or an immersive theatre experience. Searching online will give you a lot of mealy-mouthed answers about complicated ownership and health and safety concerns regarding the high water table, but clearly it's not an engineering feat beyond imagination, especially given that you can book tours of the catacombs without needing full PPE or anything. There's more to it than that. In the 1950s, when Camden was still struggling to find its own identity, the heavy industry in the area having long since been abandoned, the catacombs were mostly used as homeless encampments. Britain was still recovering from World War II, during which they'd been used as bomb shelters, as well as smuggling routes for the thriving wartime black market. One of the running tragedies of the war, and one which is barely talked about even today, is the number of people who returned severely traumatised and unable to reintegrate into society. A lot of these people disappeared underground one way or another, some into Anderson shelters, some into prisons, 
but many into the tunnels beneath London. The Guild of Subterraneans was put to work in 1957, clearing the Camden catacombs out. Since the tunnels had access to many of the old warehouses in the area, and a couple of the houses for that matter, business owners were concerned that the large underground vagrant population would discourage business from moving back to the London canals. The Subterraneans were a rough crew, at that point led by Russell Wheeler, who inherited the title of livery master from his father. He'd worked out a deal with the various parties who had claims on the Camden Catacombs, in exchange for retaining part of the underground thoroughfare for smuggling operations connected to his work on the Yorkgate Cavern. Several groups had been hired before them to clear out the settlers, but they'd all failed. The tunnels were endless, twisting and looping in on themselves, filled with bolt holes and improvised barricades designed to keep the police away. No, Wheeler wasn't going to fall for the trap of trying to do it by hand. He knew what he had to do. After all, he'd learned from the best. His father. Geoffrey Wheeler, the former livery master, had spent a lot of time working on that most Victorian of obsessions, the prison. Without wishing to fully exhaust my half-remembered Foucault, the evolution of the penal system in this period led to a much higher number of inmates being held for much longer periods, with a focus on isolation and the quiet contemplation of one's crimes. This meant a greatly increased number of cells were required, especially as the large group pens fell out of fashion in favour of single cells designed to prevent prisoners from talking to each other, lest they relapse into bad habits. Unfortunately for the architects of these new temples of incarceration, the city doesn't care for its prisons to sprawl outwards beyond the initially agreed footprint, so instead they did what everyone did. They called the subterraneans. We don't know exactly how many additional sub-basements Geoffrey Wheeler put in beneath Clerkenwell, but we do know that the works went on continuously for several years, mostly using the labour of the prisoners themselves. Wheeler was connected to a local judge who thought manual labour was good for the prisoners, and who had received kickbacks from the guild through various legal channels in exchange for harsher sentences. And so, the prisoners kept flowing, and the most committed of them were offered a way out through a subterranean's apprenticeship, at a greatly reduced rate of pay, of course, as an ex-offender. In 1867, Irish Republicans detonated a barrel of gunpowder outside the walls of Clerkenwell Prison in an attempt to free one of their number who was being held inside. Prison authorities had been tipped off in advance to the attempt and had changed the normal exercise time, preventing any escapes, but they hadn't bothered to warn the people who lived nearby, and 12 were killed as a result of the explosion. This event, known as the Clerkenwell Outrage, 
ignited English animosity against the Irish Republican cause, resulting in widespread suppression of protest and the suspension of habeas corpus in England. It was already suspended in Ireland at that point. By Conservative Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli. Thousands of special constables were hired to tackle the threat of terrorism, and they were given a great many additional powers to combat sedition against the British Empire, which they took to with unparalleled vigour. Queen Victoria even wrote to the Home Secretary expressing her frustration with the legal system's perceived slowness, insisting that all future terror suspects be lynch lord on the spot. I'm sure this sort of rhetoric sounds familiar enough to you all that I don't have to draw the obvious parallels, but the adage about not knowing your history and therefore being doomed to repeat it rings as true as ever. It's unclear what effect the bombing would have had on the deep level tunnelling going on below, but it's unlikely to have been pretty. The easy flip interpretation would be to say that this bombing did far more to hurt than it did to help the marginalised and oppressed in and out of the prison, but I'm resistant to that sort of argument. It always sounds like you're excusing the oppressor to me, like you forced their hand somehow. Ultimately. Most of the people in Clerkenwell Prison had already been given death sentences one way or another, and without the corrupt and violent carceral industrial complex which locked them up in the first place, none of this would have come to pass. It's important not to get distracted from the greater crime, just because it's buried under layers of bureaucracy and concrete. In the late 1880s, Several new prisons were constructed around London, and the decision was taken to close Clerkenwell and relocate the inmates. Space was made to transfer the 286 cells worth of prisoners to other correctional institutions, which created an immediate problem for the warden, the judge, and Wheeler. Although they had only formally logged 286 prisoners in the underground cells, They'd actually been incarcerating hundreds of local folks without any particular oversight, running dragnets over the slums and throwing them in the catacombs as a recruiting ground for the subterraneans. The new police powers which stemmed from the Clerkenwell outrage gave them free reign to run the prison like a modern CIA black site, into which people can be disappeared on a judge's orders, without trial or any legal redress. Wheeler's endgame was to land an official government contract to expand the prison underground, as they'd already been surreptitiously doing, and then pocket the money. The decision to instead close the prison left them with several hundred illegally held prisoners kept in squalid, awful conditions, some of whom hadn't seen daylight in years. Releasing them now was out of the question, far too potentially embarrassing for the establishment. A decision was made by Wheeler and the Warden. The prison was close enough to the River Fleet that it only took a few days tunnelling by a select few subterraneans for them to break through. And when they did, they redirected it down into the unsanctioned sub-basement levels. 
trapped in their cells. The imprisoned never stood a chance. The power had been disconnected, leaving them in the pitch black, screaming themselves hoarse as the running water trickled gradually down the stairs. It took a couple of days since Wheeler realised that fully redirecting the river would be noticed downstream, and the prisoners knew what was happening the entire time. The water rose gradually around their feet, hour by hour, seeping under the doors and through the barred windows, slowly but surely drowning them in little boxes in the dark. When it was finished, Wheeler covered over the stairs, bricked up the entrance, and went on his way. Which brings us back to the Camden Catacombs in 1957. Russell Wheeler, like his father, had little sympathy for the exploited and oppressed who lived beneath the city, and he was more than happy to do the dirty work of the rich and powerful. Tasked with wiping out those inconvenient souls whose suffering couldn't turn a profit, he followed in his forebear's footsteps and redirected the canal into the catacombs. As any plumber will tell you though, water can be a poorly behaved beast. In a non-linear space like the catacombs, it doesn't behave as expected. It drains in strange places, leaks, scatters, swells, and reshapes itself with the tide. The water and the earth have ways of resisting human control, and although the subterraneans left the canal draining into the tunnels beneath Camden for weeks on end, they never showed any sign of filling. Unlike the prison, though, the Camden catacombs weren't full of shackled unfortunates, fastened securely in their cells and unable to resist. They were full of survivors. Some military, some refugees, some folks who just found the familiar threat of the underground shantytown more appealing than the chaos and turmoil above. The tunnels stretched for miles and had actually been expanded by the people who lived there to allow for extra space. Some of the earlier groups who'd been hired to clear out the tunnels returned with reports of impossibly huge underground caverns, far exceeding in size what was possible according to the maps they'd been given. These caverns were used by the underground folks to expand, to set up little suspended streets beneath the city, to create a homespun community beyond the reach of the world which had abandoned them. One member of a clearing party, a bailiff and former police sergeant, told of turning a corner and being confronted with a sheer cliff edge, stretching miles downwards, with a suspended town hovering above it a few hundred metres from where he was standing. Dozens of improvised buildings, held together with rope and scaffolding, stood gleaming in the centre of a great cavern which he said seemed to emanate a kind of calming warmth, which nonetheless let him know, gently, that he was not welcome there. 
Wheeler never saw any of this. He never even went into the catacombs beyond the first level. Nor did anyone else ever again. The canal overflows into the tunnels beneath Camden to this day. The subterranean's enduring gift to the city. A failed attempt to drown it. When I returned to the Allgate Tunnel last September, I was surprised to find it flooded, but maybe I shouldn't have been. A thousand tons of water went missing in Camden. A thousand people were drowned in Clerkenwell. A thousand were chased beneath the earth by the Great War, and maybe, like the tide, they'll return one day, blinking like kittens choosing who to trust with lessons about survival and resistance. Season 2 of Subterraneans. I've been James Thompson. I'm now going to be taking a little break while I work on what's next for the show. If you've enjoyed this season, I'd love it if you could tell your friends and loved ones about it. It really does make all the difference. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. Please remember to subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app since it does help me get my name out there. You can also subscribe on Patreon, where you'll get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 per month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran and Alex, who are waiting with me in the depths. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.